I mean, the last uh, SAMHSA study showed that 99% of incarcerated women and 76% uh, of incarcerated men had massive trauma. Most of Idaho, all of Idaho, has actually helped provider shortage areas for behavioral and mental health. And so in a rural setting, you may not have those resources. That these individuals that we're helping are our friends and our families and our neighbors, and that just because they're in crisis, we shouldn't forget that. PTSD, depression, anxiety, addiction, all of these are far more likely in individuals who are justice involved when we compare them to the general population. Welcome back. This is Something for the Pain, podcast produced by Project Echo in Idaho, made for Idaho's healthcare professionals working to learn best practices in the fight to prevent, treat, and facilitate recovery from opioid and substance use disorders in communities across the state of Idaho. I'm your host, Sam Steffen. As long as you've got the internet, you can join from anywhere. You Idaho.edu slash echo and you're there. You can view our session topics, you can register and more. We'll email you the Zoom link if you haven't come before. Echo Idaho, sign up for our free... On our last episode... A year ago, if I saw 10 clients coming into Recovery for Life, maybe one of those clients would say that they had an, an issue or had used opiates in the past. We heard from Director of Recovery for Life, Amy Jepson, who was talking all about the state of opioid use in the state of Idaho. Now it's about eight out of 10 clients coming through the door will talk about opiate problems or opiate use. We also got to talking about some of the medications used in medication-assisted treatment for opioid use disorders, namely methadone, buprenorphine, suboxone, naltrexone, and naloxone. On today's episode, episode three, we're going to be looking at some of the crossover between opioid prevention, treatment, and recovery services and behavioral health services. As WAMI Director Jeff Sigmiller pointed out last time, Most of Idaho, all of Idaho, has actually helped provider shortage areas for behavioral and mental health. Idaho currently ranks lowest in the country when it comes to mental health spending, just $32 per capita. Idaho also ranks 49th in the nation for delivery of mental health care services. Due to the severe shortage of mental health specialists, the majority of Idahoans who receive help for mental health conditions are treated not by mental health specialists, but by their primary care providers, which are also small in number. A little over 1,600 serve the state's 1.7 million residents. Think about that for a second. That means that there's one doctor for every 1,062 people in the state of Idaho. Primary care providers are routinely in contact with individuals who may be in crisis. For people who have a substance use disorder, not having access to the substance they need can also put them in crisis. Not surprisingly, these primary care providers are four times more likely to be exposed to violence in their workplace than those employed in the private industry. A 2016 article from the New England Journal of Medicine found that 71% of physicians reporting have never received any kind of formal workplace de-escalation training. Today we're going to be learning some de-escalation techniques from Abby Abandondolo, Security Director at St. Luke's Health System. In the second half of our episode, we're going to change topics from de-escalation techniques to talk with Skip Clapp, the Director of Court Services in Valley County. Skip's going to be telling us about some programs the courts have in place to address opioid and substance use disorders 
as they intersect with Valley County Court Services. All of that is coming up in the next 45 minutes, so stick around. Echo Idaho, sign up for our free sessions, there's a handful every month. Echo Idaho, you can earn CE credit while you sit and eat your lunch. Well, the E stands for extensions. So let's get to today's lecture. The recording we're going to be hearing was recorded live during an ECHO session on April 15th, 2020. This was a part of ECHO Idaho's series on behavioral health in primary care. And here to introduce today's lecture and presenter, I'm going to turn it over to ECHO Idaho Program Director, Lachelle Smith. Welcome. Glad to have you for Echo Idaho Behavioral Health and Primary Care. We are joined by Mr. Abby Avendondolo, who is the um, Security Director at St. Luke's Health System. He's been doing that in Texas and in Idaho for coming on 40 years. He's also a former homicide detective with the Houston Police Department and a detective on a TV show called Cold Justice. But he's not here to talk about those things. He's here to talk about de-escalation, and we're going to learn a lot, and I'm really looking forward to it. Abby, the floor is yours. Thank you. I'd like to talk about some of the things uh, that I oversee at St. Luke's as it relates to de-escalation. Uh, the St. Luke's health system employs uh, about 160 security people who assist with de-escalation with patients who are, are, are combative or aggressive. Um, and sometimes those, do, uh, th those aren't patients, they can be visitors as well. So our team is made up mostly of former law enforcement officers. So they do have a lot of background in the ability to de-escalate. And what we do is we've kind of honed their skills um, and we provide this instruction and collaboration with uh, uh, clinical staff to really make things as safe as possible. One of the things I like to start out with with our team is that we remind everyone that these individuals that we're helping are our friends and our families and our neighbors and that just because they're in crisis we shouldn't forget that and that's really an important piece to our de-escalation uh, model that we use is, is we're trying to accomplish uh, a, a a short-term outcome of something positive. Uh, the larger issue is going to be dealt with by the clinical staff, but really we're just trying to keep everyone safe. And, and that's easy to say, and unfortunately, sometimes very difficult to do. So our objectives really today in this very brief period that we're together are to, to help recognize combative aggressive behavior, uh, talk about some simple and very effective de-escalation steps, and then really hone in on some things as it relates to situational awareness. One of the things that we find in uh, the healthcare setting is that during de-escalation or prior to, oftentimes the staff, primarily the clinical staff, aren't as aware of their surroundings that, as they should be. I was a cop for 32 years in Houston. That was something that was pounded into our heads essentially every single day because your ability to recognize your surroundings really does make your, your life and your job a whole lot safer. And we'll talk a little bit about recognizing um, combative and aggressive behavior, um, a clenched fist, uh, the mouth open, the, the eyes that are uh, focused, uh, those expressions 
are things that we should notice during these uh, interactions with both patients and visitors. Do we notice these things? Are we aware of these things? And seeing them and recognizing how do we keep ourselves safe as we attempt to take care of the patient and how we communicate when it comes to hostile and angry patients. Um, we should be aware that much of our communication is nonverbal. And I think a lot of times in this position, we forget our own body language and what we're saying to that patient. We should be recognizing their, their body language and we should be looking for or listening to subtle verbal cues, but really we should consider how we're standing, where we have our hands, how we have our hands um, facing towards the patient. Are they open? Are they closed? Do we have our arms folded? Think about how we approach the patient and how we set the tone for the interaction. And this is in response to the patient's uh, anxiety level going up and, and entering the room and the patient is already upset. But again, we need to train ourselves to recognize that nonverbal communication that the patient is providing us with. We as professionals should recognize that and start thinking about how we're going to approach this situation, providing ourselves with some distance between the patient and ourselves. But really it's recognizing it and being cognizant of our own body language. The verbal cues sometimes are, are hard to pick up on. And all of you, I'm sure, are doing this uh, day in, day out, so you, you become experts, but it's easy to become desensitized to that. Um, looking for and listening for certain phrases, certain words that would help you understand that this person is going to go from being upset, anxious, maybe slightly aggressive, to being physically aggressive. And that's where kind of the line changes. That's where everything changes for us. So uh, it, it, I think it's very difficult uh, to, re to remain as vigilant as we should be in those interactions so that we, we do keep ourselves safe. Again, the, the focus of this is to keep th that healthcare worker safe as they try to provide the best patient care that they can. You can't do that if you're fearful or if you're not recognizing these signs or if uh, you are injured in, in some sort of interaction. At St. Luke's, we record every physical confrontation with a patient in, in terms of documenting. We, we keep track of those. We look for trends. Uh, this is something that we share with other uh, healthcare organizations in Idaho and across the United States. Um, I co-chair the Workplace Violence Committee for the Leadership Institute, and this body of work is something that is uh, on the forefront virtually in every conversation that we have, is how do we keep our employees safe in dealing with uh, combative, aggressive uh, patients? So let's talk about recognizing pre-assaultive behavior. These are a little more direct and certainly something that we should pay attention to the bald fist, the, the blading of the body. So someone turning themselves to you as you're trying to talk to them, try to calm them down, and you notice these things, that's the time when you should be backing up, giving yourself some distance. I, I really focus on watching people's eyes. Experience and anecdotal evidence has certainly taught me that 
the, the individual's eyes will tell you a lot about what they might do. And this is something that, that we repeat at St. Luke's routinely is that if you notice the person that you're talking with appears to be looking through you, that's a very good sign that they are considering becoming physically violent. So if you get that sensation that the person is, is looking through you while you speak, I would say give yourself a little more room. Really a double arm's length. We, we've had this discussion a number of times about how far in, uh, you should be away, that an arm's length, a single arm's length, about three feet, two and a half feet, is probably not enough. When we're talking to a patient that's exhibiting some of these behaviors, I think that six-foot level is, is a good distance to, to be standing at. I, I would say it's important to take away that once you recognize these pre-assaultive behaviors – that you should really consider no longer participating in any type of negotiation or de-escalation, but at this point, you should back up. Perhaps step out of the room or bring someone into the room with you so that you're not stuck in there with somebody who might be physically stronger, larger, or more determined to hurt you. These, these are the steps to take really to, to start keeping yourself safe. So when we talk about de-escalation, there are three techniques that, that I'm a fan of, and I know these work very well. Uh, it's what we teach our staff, and the feedback is very good. The first is to speak slowly. So changing the cadence of your voice is difficult. I know specifically it's difficult for me. Grew up in New York. I'm used to talking fast, and I run into problems with it. But during that de-escalation, learning to speak slowly almost to where it feels a little uncomfortable. Lowering the tone of your voice also, getting it, dropping down an octave, if that's possible, makes a difference as well. Um, when I worked for the police department in Houston, um, we had a very robust mental health unit uh, for all of the patrol officers. Uh, a lot of the testing that we did, a lot of the training that we did, involved lowering the tone of the voice and we we found that the the lower your voice was that the individual that you were dealing with who might be upset might even be yelling if you continue talking slowly with a lower tone they eventually stopped yelling and would listen to what you had to say it was a great technique the other piece of this triad here is to repeat that individual's first name often almost to where you feel uncomfortable. And I'll give you an example. The, the patient, his name is Bill, and he's upset. He's thrown his food on the floor. Or maybe he's, he's made some indirect threats. In that de-escalation where you're speaking slowly, slowly to him, where you're saying, Bill, Bill, I, Bill, I want you to listen to me. I, I'm here to talk to you, Bill, about what's going on. On, but Bill, you need to Bill, you need to get back into the chair because you're safe there and I'm safe with you there. Do you understand, Bill? And it's the, that reaffirming statement and repeating that first name slowly, we have found works very effectively. And, and again, it's really to keep you safe and those individuals safe. 
it's difficult to continue talking while that person is yelling at you or is anxious or upset. But I would say if you can practice that and continue to speak slowly, even as they're yelling, they will eventually listen to what you have to say. And it's okay to talk as they're speaking and and not raise your voice because they're going to be curious about what you're saying and they will. And again, this isn't a long-term fix is to get through that anxious period. When it comes to that verbal discussion or that, that verbal piece and listening to what they're saying, where you're using your basic de-escalation techniques, those three, all good if that individual's yelling, if that patient is cursing, and maybe even if that individual makes an indirect threat. But if there is a direct threat, so a direct threat being, I'm going to punch you in the face, I'm going to kick you, um, that's the time where we suggest you walk away, step out of the room, ask for help. You're not going to make any headway at that point, and you're entering into an area where you're becoming unsafe at that point. And this is where you really have to remove your ego and maybe recognize that you are being less than effective. And it may not be anything that you're doing. It's just that individual doesn't like you, doesn't like the way you look, has a bias against you, but recognizing I'm not effective um, and I'm, I'm going to, to step away. Uh, these are also some techniques that we used when I was in the police department with, uh, you know, I was a homicide detective for 21 years. Um, we, we found that individuals won't relate well to certain people. If you've got a bald head, if you've got a, a goatee, it's, it's nothing about you. It's just that individual step away and let somebody else take over. So again, keeping yourself safe is at the forefront. And once that direct threat comes up, up it's time to step away. Situational awareness is one of my favorite things because I find that law enforcement professionals are good at this because their safety is always an issue. So noticing what's in the room, maybe a razor blade that somehow just appears on a cabinet or the individual has something in their pocket or someone in the room that's not uh, getting along with you or them. Do you have an escape plan? Is there a way to get out of the room? That, that is part of that situational awareness, always positioning yourself in the room so that you don't have to go through the patient to get out and that there's always a way out, not just out of that room, that treatment room, but out of that area overall if this person becomes so violent or if this person fabricates some kind of weapon, grabs a gate belt or, or some tubing, something that you have a way to get out. And, and that's where being aware of your surroundings makes a difference. And that's something that you have to practice where you notice everything. Almost on a level that is, again, feels a little uncomfortable that you're noticing everything, bulges in pockets, bulges along the waistline, something that's on the table, in the room, nearby, anything. It's something that you really have to work on to be situationally aware. So some takeaways. Regardless of how much training you get, regardless of what your security team does or whether you do or don't have security, ultimately you're responsible for your own safety. You have to be willing to take certain risks or recognize those risks and not give in to them. Um, 
don't give away the fact that you're fearful of that individual. During that negotiation period, you should be fearful if they are upset, if they are making a direct threat and you're trying to get out of the room. Don't cry. I know that's easy to say, but hard to do sometimes. But don't give in to your fear. Be cautious, but be confident. And as you navigate through this event, think about your body language, how you're being uh, perceived by this person. And as you work through this, whether it has a positive outcome or not, be aware of what's going on around you, your physical surroundings, what's in the room, what's near the patient, uh, what's in his clothing or her clothing. Those are the things that I think will, will really make you safe and give you a level of confidence that increases your ability to, to have a positive outcome. That was a didactic presentation by Abby Abandondolo titled De-Escalation. That lecture was recorded live during an ECHO session that took place on April 15th, 2020, as a part of ECHO Idaho's Behavioral Health and Primary Care series. If you'd like to watch the Zoom recording of that presentation, that video is currently available on the Echo Idaho YouTube channel, which you can access through our website. The PowerPoint slide deck that accompanied that presentation is also available on our website, www.uidaho.edu echo. I'm going to transition now to a more recent conversation I had with the Director of Court Services in Valley County, Skip Clapp. If you'll remember in our last episode, one of the things Amy Jepson mentioned in her talk about the state of opioid and drug use in Idaho was the piloting of some new programs aimed at getting people who have substance use disorders, who have also become involved in the justice system, into treatment. Uh, For the first time two years ago, Idaho actually entertained on the state side and the state payer source um, paying for medication-assisted therapy. Um, And there's some pilots going on right now, including one that's looking at a diversion for people that get picked up for for having heroin or opiates um, and allowing them to go to treatment rather than being charged with that. Skip joined me for a special interview from his office in McCall to talk with me a little about the opioid and substance use trends in Valley County as they intersect with the Valley County court system. Welcome to the program, Skip. Thank you, Sam. I appreciate it. So can we just start off by having you introduce yourself to our folks who might be listening and having you tell us a little bit about your work? Okay, sure. So I'll start with my position um, as the director of Valley County Court Services. I oversee probation for adult misdemeanor and juvenile. Um, That includes programs, restorative programs like adult and juvenile diversion, community service. And then um, as grants and other things apply, sometimes we have other programs. But primarily our job is is to hold people accountable. But more than that, it's to help them be successful so that whatever struggles they're having, if they need assistance with it, we do our best to place them with the right people so they can get the help they need and move on with their life. You just mentioned the diversion program. Can you explain to our listeners what the premise of that program is? Yeah, the, the premise of diversion is it's based on the best practice principle that you don't want to take low risk level people and insert them into a place and environments where there's high risk level people. Um, over and over again, it showed that taking low level offenders 
And that can be people that just made a mistake. That could be people that maybe have a mental mental health issue or possibly a disability. Um, social, economic, education, sometimes that can that can fall into these kind of categories too, where they're just disadvantaged for some reason, but they're not really a risk. The premise is just giving them a little bit of assistance, a little bit of oversight, and help them self-correct on their own. So when you when you are talking about low-level offenses here, what kinds of things are you talking about? Yeah, so I mean, as far as as far as diversion go, um, first of all, we're looking at first first-time offenders, right? So if they have a record of something, they're not going to be qualified for diversion. But drugs and alcohol would absolutely qualify. Um, and and that's complicated because some drugs are an automatic felony, like um, prescription medication, opioids, methamphetamine, cocaine, heroin, LSD, mushrooms. Those are automatic felonies. And larger counties, most larger counties here in Idaho have a drug court that's specifically meant for that because it's a felony. Here in Valley County, it's possible that somebody could get a diversion with one of those, but it's not likely. Um, But on the other hand, if it's marijuana, that's very likely. If it's simple possession of marijuana or paraphernalia, they'd qualify for diversion on that. So, Skip, I have um, I have in front of me the um, 2020 annual community gap analysis report that was put out by the Idaho Department of Corrections in partnership with the Idaho Department of Health and Welfare. Um, and in that report, they found that of everyone currently involved in the justice system in Idaho, only 15 percent of those people were not in need of substance use disorder treatment. Um so another way to say that is that 85% of people who are involved in the justice system are in need of that treatment. They also say that uh, individuals who struggle with a substance use disorder are much more likely to recidivate. Um, there's been a lot of work in recent years to start looking at some of this data to say that this really should be defined as a public health crisis rather than a, a criminal behavior. It makes me curious how some of these encounters between law enforcement and people with a substance use disorder take place. For the individuals who are brought into court services with drug and alcohol charges, what do those charges typically look like? I mean, the vast majority, vast majority of the people that we get in here on drug and alcohol crimes is on the highway. It's driving. Um, a lot of time it's it's not necessarily for driving badly. It's failing to use a turn light. It's... Um, getting pulled over for some other stuff, but they forget they have it out in the open or the officer smells it or the officer sees something else that leads into that. So that's a good portion of it. I would say the second greatest portion um, outside of driving is public disturbances. Um, Probably 50% are the kind from a home where law enforcement's called because there's a concern by the neighbors or maybe somebody in the home calls because of concerns of um, safety or property damage. But that would, I, I would say that's likely, you know, 10% and driving is probably 90. So what are the demographics of the people who are encountering court services in Valley County? Uh, we just went through that and actually went through the juvenile, the state, and um, Valley County data 
for 2020. And our demographics are 97% white, um, about 75% are males. And um, the vast charges that we see, criminal charges, are drug and alcohol related. Um, like I said, we do misdemeanor, but a good portion of their adult section are people that it was a felony DUI that was reduced as part of a plea bargain, or, you know, they were caught with uh, opioids or, or some other pill prescription they shouldn't have, and that was reduced to a misdemeanor, so they wouldn't give them a felony. And a lot, a lot are DUIs, and not just alcohol DUIs, um, but just driving under the influence in general. What sorts of resources exist for people who may be struggling with a substance use disorder, who who find themselves caught up in the courts or the criminal justice system? Um, in your experience, are, th- are there ways for people who are struggling with those things to get into treatment? Yeah, we so we have in county as far as substance um, treatment providers. And, and most of the time, what that looks like is when they're on formal probation, part of their judgment was to get an evaluation and to follow those recommendations. And we have two up here right now. We have one in Donnelly at the Change Clinic, and then we have one in McCall. And over the years, that's been, it's been problematic because we've had one, and then you have one person in each one of these places that are doing it, and it doesn't offer a whole lot of variety for people. It's a very small community. Um, we know each other, and sometimes, you know, with those with those relationships and treatment, you just really need the right fit. And so that's been problematic for us. Having the Rock come in, which is pure support recovery, has been awesome. I really like the sense that they're not required to report into probation, which is a big deal. The treatment providers, when we send someone there, they have to tell us, they don't tell us about what's going on as far as the comments and the work necessarily, but they have to, they tell us if somebody tests positive for drugs or alcohol. They have to tell us if somebody's attending class. They have to tell us about the participation in class. And that requirement can inadvertently cause a wedge between the treatment provider and the client. So peer support is referring to counseling and guidance that's offered by folks who are in recovery themselves. Is that right? So it's people that have gone through it, have been through it, understand addiction, um, give them good support. They don't have to contact us. They don't. Um, I mean, maybe if it was like a self-harm issue or something, they might. But it really gives our clients the freedom to be able to talk to someone and have that support and know it's just between them and in their peer recovery coach and i i just see a lot of value in that i'm excited to see you know over the next few years how that develops and um the work we can do with them it is still new though so right now there's only one person that locally lives here in valley county that's a peer recovery coach and the rest are filling in from treasure valley but i i see that growing um Monica Forbes, also who CEO that runs it, has developed a wonderful um, treatment program for the jail, which which hasn't existed in our jail for years and years and years. So she's put that together, at least a really good, strong first step for peer recovery coaches. 
Um, it could also work in tangent hand in hand with substance abuse treatment providers. So would that involve taking folks who are in jail and prison to treatment centers or, or would that involve uh, bringing those resources into into spaces like jails and, and prisons? The way it's set up is really, let's say we have these people that are in custody um, and they're pending, pending a PV, probation violation, or a new charge. And the court hasn't released them from custody or kept a high bond because of the concern for community safety, um, primarily related in these cases to substance use, whether it's alcohol, um, drug use, whatever. And what the program would do, it would offer this peer recovery coach. Um, so it's volunteer by the clients in the jail. And they could reach out. This peer recovery coach could meet with them and find out what they need to get set up, to get out, so they can they can have their needs provided for and, and be able to do it safely in the community. So they would find out about what medications they have and if they have them or not and help them work that out. Sign up for Medicaid or other insurance if they need it. Housing, food, um, finding a treatment provider or support for them before they get out so they can develop this plan and we could bring it back to the court and say, look, this person is ready for release and here is our the recovery plan. Here's Here's our safety plan for them to be released. And I think it's just a great idea. I think it's sometimes it's necessary, but it's certainly not desired to house people in jail or in prison um, just for just because of addiction. You know, it'd be way better off for the community, for the taxpayers, if they could get out and start getting on their life, you know, and get things set up and start working again, get the treatment. Listening to my interview with Skip Clapp, the Director of Court Services in Valley County. Skip's with us today to discuss the intersections between substance use disorder treatment services and the court system in Valley County. So far, we've discussed how a peer recovery coach can help assist people with a substance use disorder. I'd like to transition a little bit, if I could, to talk about the rural aspect of Valley County. Skip, I remember you were saying last time we spoke that you were talking you were talking a bit about just because of the uh, rural nature of Valley County, that some folks might be required to like attend a class as a part of their probation that might be an hour away from their house. And if they don't have access to transportation, that can be a real barrier to success in a, in a probation program. If you have anything else to add about the, how the rural nature of Valley County and Idaho in general impacts um, folks who are, who are coming through court services and how other services like that um, might benefit it. Yeah, um, and it, it, this has been a grump of mine that I've shared with judges for for over a decade, really close to two decades. And it's not just Valley County, but you know, if you start in McCall and you go all the way, you know, west to Oregon or Washington, depending where you're at in the state, and all the way east over to Wyoming or Montana, there's this great big hole from McCall all the way up to Lewiston, expanding that area where the the opportunity for mental health 
or substance abuse providers can be non-existent. And it can be cruel, I think, when a probationer is ordered to complete something like, say, domestic violence treatment, which if they're convicted of domestic violence, it's a mandatory statute. The judge doesn't have a choice of 52 weeks domestic violence classes, and that's once a week. So for here in Valley County, we've never had one, except for in the last few years where we had a pilot program, and you had people that were required once a week, and this is during working hours too, almost always, they had to get out of work easy, some early or not at all, take it off for the day, drive 100 miles down to Boise or Caldwell, do the class and drive back. Some of them didn't have vehicles or didn't have a driver's license or quite frankly, just the burden of that cost for some people was was too big. And so um, you see the same thing with, with substance abuse, like a level one treatment for somebody that's ordered that and said lives in Elk City. Well, the closest place that they could go would be Orfino, which is 40 miles. But then you put in winter conditions, you put in not having a driver's license and relying on someone else. And that level one can be meeting with someone up to three times a week in person. And it's just been an ongoing trouble issue. Um, and I've heard it from a lot of different administrators and, and the housing or the the brick and mortar part is essential where people people that provide these services they can't afford to have a, a place a center set up with that amount of clientele and um, up until recently with covid the availability of doing it online just hasn't been acceptable I mean, they just haven't allowed it. Domestic violence is one we tried for years and years to allow to get that allowed to be done over Zoom or over teleconference, and they just wouldn't allow it. So I, I think that there's a desperate need in our rural communities to have that access via um, internet connection and through telecommunication. And I think it would be outstanding in those programs if there was if there was a group or people that could travel and, and make a make a in-person meeting with these clients once a month or a group of them once a month. But it's an ongoing issue um, that I, I think still needs resolved up here. Is there anything else that you want to, people to know about your work or ways the community could get involved in advocating for some of the resources you're talking about? I think when you're talking especially about a rural community, um, I really don't see the answer in just a treatment provider or, you know, one thing. I think what makes a difference in people's life is a relationship and people that actually care. And that's something that we strive to do here, that we treat people with respect and dignity and we expect to be treated the same. But I, I think a lot of these people that do struggle with it, they don't, nobody wants to be an addict. Nobody wants to be a slave to things, but it's terribly difficult to get out of. It's very often something that people just can't do on their own. And I would say just, you know, to our community, and I think they do a good job of when you see those people just reaching out, you know, with respect and care and, and making that offering, making that offering of partnering with them, being with them. You know, I heard, I had heard a great sermon the other day and, and it was really about, you know, sometimes the best thing we can do for people is just sit by them and listen. Not try to teach them, not try to coax them, not try to educate them, but just just care. And and I think if people in our community continue to do that, they'll reach those people that 
are struggling, that don't know how to say something, that are embarrassed, that are ashamed. Um, but I think that that'll make the biggest difference in a person's life or just those, those relationships with people that just actually care if they're doing good or bad. Well, thank you so much, Skip. It's been, it's been really great talking with you today. Well, you're very welcome. That again was an interview with Skip Clapp, the director of court services in Valley County. Just to highlight a few things Skip mentioned in there, Skip talked about the Change Clinic, which is located in Donnelly, Idaho, zip code 83615. The Change Clinic offers medication-assisted treatment, counseling services, and more. Information about the Change Clinic's hours of operation and services can be found on their website, www.idthechangeclinic.weebly.com. Skip also mentioned The Rock, R-O-C, which stands for Recovery-Oriented Community. The Rock is a recovery-oriented community center that opened in 2020, founded by the Valley County Opioid Response Project in partnership with Peer Wellness, with the mission of advocating for and supporting individuals who are seeking to initiate or maintain recovery from behavioral health and or substance use issues. Its exact location is 106 East Park Street, Suite 227 in McCall, Idaho, zip code 83638. Information about their hours of operation, recovery services, ways to donate, and ways to volunteer are all available on the ROC website, www.theroc.center. Details about some of the court service programs Skip mentioned in there, like the adult and juvenile probation programs, can also be found online on the Valley County Court Services website at www.co.id.valley.us. If you're interested in joining our free live echo sessions to receive continuing education credit, learn best practices, ask a question, or grow your community, please visit our website at www.uidaho.edu echo, where you can register to attend, sign up to receive announcements, donate, and find out more information about our programs. Something for the Pain is brought to you by Echo Idaho, supported by the Whammy Medical Education Program and the University of Idaho, and is made possible by V-Corp, the Valley County Opioid Response Project. We here at Echo also want to hear your feedback. We welcome your questions, comments, and suggestions, and invite you to email us at echoidaho at uidaho.edu. And don't forget to subscribe to Something for the Pain using your podcast app. And if you have a moment, write us a review. That's about all the time we have for today. But join us next time and we'll be delving further into the treatment methods for opioid and substance use disorder, hearing a lecture from Brenda Hoyt on harm reduction. We'll also be speaking with Courtney Boyce and Shelley Hitt from Central District Health, an organization serving Idaho's Ada, Boise, Elmore, and Valley counties, and hearing about some education programs they've got in place to help connect existing prevention, treatment, and recovery resources. That's coming up next time on Something for the Pain. Until then, Idaho, take care of yourself. In full every month, echo Idaho. You can earn CE credit while you sit and eat your lunch. Well, the East 
Something for the Pain is made possible by grant number GA1RH39585 from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration, HRSA. Its contents are solely the responsibility of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official views of CDI1 or HRSA. The voices you heard at the beginning of the episode were those of Amy Jepson, Jeff Sigmiller, Abby Abandondolo, and Radha Sadacharan, respectively. Big thanks also to the other contributing voices on today's episode, Michelle Smith and Skip Clapp. I'd also like to thank Jeremy Stockett, LCSW and social worker at St. Luke's Psychiatric Wellness Services, for reviewing this episode. And a big thanks to all of our listeners, without whom none of this would be possible. Without you, we'd just be talking to ourselves. Lachelle Smith is the Echo Idaho Program Director. Katie Palmer is our Assistant Director. Our Program Managers are Carly Klein and Lindsay Winters-Jewell. Our Marketing Manager is Lindsay Lotus. Our Program Coordinators are Kayla Blades, Jessica Whitlock, and Sam Steffen. practice.